This is Recovering Through Highness. My name is Eric McCoy. You know, drug addiction, homelessness, racism, pain, depression, abuse, and trauma seems to be hitting every family across this country in one of those categories. There are days that my mind starts wondering if there's hope for this world. As I'm sitting, you know, I'll sit and watch the news in the morning of an overwhelming sense of empathy as I can feel the pain in individuals struggling with substance abuse. It could be days where I may travel to Los Angeles and I catch a glimpse of homeless encampments. And I've worked hard to separate myself from the sorrow and pain of others as I need to personally stay healthy myself and not reach that dreaded place that we call burnout. But it is individuals like my guest today who reminds me that good people still do exist. I've had him on my previous show when I was only doing audio, and I'm so glad to have him back. Anthony Brown, he's the author of From Park Bench to Park Avenue. He, re he recently started a podcast on YouTube called Thursdays with Care. Anthony Brown is the founder and director of Coordinating and Assisting Recovery Environments, also known as CARE. His passion is providing specialized treatment for individuals who suffer with mental illness combined with a substance use disorder. He is in the process of renovating a house in Ohio for the homeless. And the one thing I always see on his Facebook is the best part of waking up is Folgers in his cup. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, I'm so glad to see you again. And I want to start out by asking you, how, how is the house coming? Oh, hi, um, Eric. It's good to see you again. The house, the house is coming coming along well. Um, it is, uh, for those who don't know, I, I purchased an abandoned mansion. Um, initially, it was built in 1916. They added another part in 1950, and I purchased it probably two and a half years ago, and it's been sitting. Currently, we just got done putting a new roof on the old part, and so that's a step in the right direction. And it just continue to moving forward with the renovation process as we speak. You know, a substance abuse treatment can be a place for people to rest their head, take a break, or want a roof over their head for a moment before they go back to using. And I wanted to ask you again, you know, what is going to be your protocol in accepting individuals? Is it something that you want to determine that they're very serious about? Um, and um, the house itself is Brown Manor, and basically my goal is to be able to help out the homeless people. Um, homelessness isn't just um, a one-issue a one thing. It's a, it's a combination of a lot of different elements. Um, there's, there's the mental health portion. There's the financial portion. People can't afford a place to live. And then there's the substance abuse. For people who meet criteria for their house, I just want them to be able to physically say, I want help, and then let their actions dictate what goes from there. Um, you've been in the field of addiction, and you know how it is. You know, sometimes people, for whatever reason, is motivated to find help. Then once they start getting help, they feel a little better, and they may feel that, well, maybe it really wasn't that bad. Right. Uh, um, we want to try to create a new mindset approach to that. Uh, we know what's working out there in the addiction field, but I want to try to take it to a different level and try to actually help in a behavioralistic type of environment 
get people to change the way they think. So, so when you get this house together and it's ready to go, how are you going to get the individuals? Talks and education in terms of getting people to know about the facility? Or What's, what's fascinating is, one, um, the 12-step community is large. And word of mouth or carry um, in that arena. Uh, hospital settings, people will know. I will go out and do lectures and workshops and speak at a lot of different places. Um, the house itself is in Ohio. I'm in California. One, one caveat about this whole COVID thing is it puts everybody online, so we're able to network that way. The, um, the house, uh, we've been publicizing it, putting information out there for the past year. And so the community knows about it. It's been in the newspaper. Um, there's a lot of talk about it. I've been on um, news stations, things like that. So word is getting out about what it is. So I'm hoping that as we prepare for it, more people will want to know more about it and be willing to come and see what's going on. When it comes to the homeless population, it's not hard for you to open the doors up and say, here's a place to eat. People will come. And then we can, you know, discuss some of the different things about how we can help them on that level. So this is the book and uh, appreciate you giving me, giving me a copy. I've actually had an opportunity to, I haven't read the entire thing, but I've gone through some of it and I, I think uh, it, it's amazing. You know, your story is amazing. And how is the book doing? Now the book is doing well. Um, as with any book, it's, it's, it's interesting how you find out that a lot of people in society don't read as much as they used to. Um, everyone, cell phones, um, internet, things of that nature. But as far as a book is going, I think it's doing rather well. I know I just spoke with a group of individuals that are doing some recovering studying, and they chose my book this week to study. Nice. Yeah, so they, um, about 12 people or something like that got the book. And, you know, so... It's, it's, it's doing well considering, you know, what it's supposed to be. It's more than a book. It's a, it's a statement of a transition of a life. And that book is one part. And then me as an individual is another part. And the things I'm doing to bring awareness to the homeless community. And so as part of that equation, the book is doing fine. I want to I want to ask you again, and I think this is important because um, even though we did discuss this before on the audio podcast that we had done, tell us a little bit again about about your story. About you know you were you were homeless, and you were homeless for over twenty years, and the title of the of it being from Park Bench to Park Avenue, and what does that Park Avenue look like to you? Um, Park Avenue to me is physically, I, I have a career now. Um, physically, I'm, I'm employable or marketable. I, I, um, I have a profession that allows me to have employment even through this whole COVID thing. I'm a, I'm a professor at a college. I'm a director of nursing at a hospital. And so Park Avenue gives me, I guess, in that sense, the ability to have the revenue to be comfortable to deal or do with whatever I want. Um, I was able to purchase the mansions, things like that. On the other side of the coin, a Park Avenue part is the ability to be comfortable within myself while I navigate life. And I find that to be probably more rewarding and more fulfilling than actually having physical stuff. 
What's your, what is your thoughts? I mean, obviously with, you know, a lot of our homeless that we have out there, um, you know, you obviously you have the substance abuse, but then you also have that huge side of, of severe mental illness. And do you have a plan in terms of, or, or recommendations or ideas of being able to address that population? Well, mental illness, we as a society have figured out remedies to a lot of things. We, we know to a science what mental illness is all about. We know about depression. We know about schizophrenia. We know about anxiety. We have medications for it. We have different types of treatment formats for it. We have all of that stuff out there. The part that's probably challenging is how to get society as a whole to not view homelessness as a hopeless case. Um, there's people, I mean, depression is, is rampant, you know, and depression gets treated according to what your financial status is. Um, one person can be down and out and homeless and be on the streets and then say, oh, that person's homeless. Another person can come from Beverly Hills and, you know, be depressed and you, and you get a tablet and a cup of tea and everything's different. It's how society views it, dictates how people get treated. What I'm doing is I want everybody to realize that it's all one thing. You know, mental illness is all one thing. And if we can treat it all with the same desire for a solution, then that should help deal with this homeless um, situation. Out of all the years I've worked in this industry, and, you know, most programs today are duly diagnosed, you know, and we work with substance abuse and, you know, some other co-occurring disorder. And the biggest issue that I have found, you know, and you were talking about, yes, we have treatments and we have these medications and we have all this stuff, that there is a good good percentage of um, that population that absolutely does not want to treat that stuff. And those are the ones that obviously are going to be difficult. Um, some of them, you know, especially if you got people that have mania or severe mania, they like the mania. They like, mm-hmm. to, you know, in that, in that state. Um, you know, obviously also have a lot of them that don't absolutely accept the fact that they have anything or have an issue. Um, and so I, I understand too that, you know, with anything in life, it's a case by case basis that you'll be dealing with. I believe with that mentality that we're not lumping everybody together, that it is that case by case. We look at each person as an individual and that's what I believe. And that's what I believe is the most effective. So again, your house is in Ohio. It's in Ohio. And my son lives in Ohio. I don't know if I actually told you that. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. And he's actually out here right now visiting, but he, uh, he moved to Ohio uh, for some reason. <laughs> but, um, and how soon do you think it's going to be open? Now, somebody asked me that question the other day. Um, if I had my way, it would be open probably by the end of next year. But everything um, is driven by finances. And so since currently I'm the one-man show and I live in California – and I have to balance mortgage and bills and all that stuff. I, I would, who knows? I, I tend to do the best I can to make adjustments as things go along. Yeah. yeah, for the listeners, give them the information that where they can contact you or they can make donations to, if, if you could share that. Okay. Um, 
We have a GoFundMe page, and it's called Brown Manor, and it's on GoFundMe. Um, you can donate there if you want. I have a um, website, anthonyhowardbrown.com. You can always contact me there. I will be more than happy to work for whatever it takes. I can do lectures and workshops and come and present. Um, the book itself, money from that book, goes to paying for this same um, project, and that's available on Amazon, and the book is from Park Bench to Park Avenue. So those three avenues is what we have available out there. Or you can just Google Brown Manor or Anthony Brown and, you know, just go from there. I love the fact that, you know, everything that you're doing is, is, is for this purpose. You have, a, you have a purpose in your life and you are willing to put everything into it. And I think that's amazing. And work-wise, again, what do you do? Uh, I'm the director of nursing services at a psychiatric hospital. And I'm also a professor at a community college. Did you become a certified counselor? I am, I am a, a certified addiction treatment counselor, third level nurse. I'm a, um, I'm a KDAC too. I'm a licensed psychiatric technician. I'm a registered nurse. I'm a public health nurse. Um, there's a few other <laughs> initials behind my name, but yes, I am a counselor right now because I'm, it's really fascinating because I come from a homeless environment. I was homeless 23 years and was able to um, get things together. And now I'm having conscious thinking. And it's really fascinating because I wanted to utilize what I have to help other people. And I'm looking towards how can we best help the homeless community. And I'm doing research. And actually, I'm creating a workshop called Neuroplasticity and the Five Pillars of Recovery. And I want to start introducing that out to um, the individual public because I feel that if we start looking at homelessness in a more from a science-based principle, then possibly more fundings would go that way. And everything's funding-driven anyway, you know. And so if we can be able to do that, then that would be great. But that's what I'm, I'm working on. And I think it's extremely fascinating how brain chemistry and science worked. I, I just, I just love that stuff. You know, I teach at, at this school and we do a lot about, uh, you know, physiological effects and, you know, and that kind of stuff. And, and one of the topics is neuroplasticity and, you know, mm -hmm. look at drug abuse, um, neuroplasticity actually works against us. And then when we actually get clean and sober, it works for us <laughs> as <laughs> our brains rewire themselves and there's new connections and, and things of that nature. Um, with that sense of neuroplasticity in terms of working with the homeless, what does that look like to you? What does that mean to you? Well, for me, we, we know homelessness is not just, just one thing. It's a combination of a lot of different stuff. And when we start looking at um, how do we, how, how did we find out or how do we discover a way to get comfortable in that environment? And then I relate it back to, did we go through enough trauma that exhausted all of our fight or flight responses, which basically boils down to epinephrine and norepinephrine and things like that? Did we, did we exhaust all that to the point where our neural pathways were no longer in use and we experienced what's considered neural pruning? And that avenue just dissipated and somehow we rerouted a different way to find pleasure and drive and desire and things of that nature. And so I think 
that was um, something I'm starting to look into and bouncing off other individuals to see the validity of it. So do you think it's related to that reward deficiency? I, I think so, because um, in order for us not to want to change, or most time we change things because it's uncomfortable, and we get something behind it. So how do we settle for just saying, okay, it's okay for me not to shower for a couple of days, or it's okay for me not to have a roof over my head, or it's okay for me to deal with a lot of the negative consequences of being um, without a house. How do we settle for that to the point where if we're pulled out of it, we will return back to it? And that's the same question with substance abuse. Exactly. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. And I mean, that's very closely related to, you know, with homelessness and, and, you know, I was, when we had done the podcast, I was uh, talking a little bit about, you know, with my past and we were talking about the Grateful Dead and I kind of ran off with the Grateful Dead and I lived that, <laughs> that homelessness in the sense that I did have a car, but I was, uh, you know, sleeping some nights in homeless shelters and we were eating food from churches and living that type of life. And I liked it at that point in time. I can say I, I liked it because I felt free. It was, I, I had no responsibilities. I could go here and be here. And when I'm done there, I go here. And there was not, there was, there was very little stress in life when I had that. Now mm -hmm. I'm not saying any of that was good because, you know, as I grew as an individual, I realized that there's a lot more that I want in life than to, you know, and, and so today I will gladly deal with the stressors of life to have those things that are very important to me, such mm -hmm. as family and having a house and, and those types and being happy. And that I think is a dilemma that is, is probably run into a lot is the homeless that they like it. Some, well, it's, some people do. You know, that, and that's fascinating because do they actually like it or have they just figured out a way to adapt to it? Have just settled. Right, right. And that's where I start trying to figure out what changed in your brain to make you settle for that. Because most people, if you notice, you, you don't see babies homeless. Well, you know, CPS intervenes and all that stuff. So people aren't born on the streets. So somehow that became a learned, accept, you know, acceptable situation. And if that's the case, then what changed in your brain from being to the point where I want to work, I want to have a roof over my head to the point where it's okay if I don't have nothing? On that idea of the settlement and settling for um, you know, being homeless and you being homeless for as long as you had, how difficult was it for you to step out of that homelessness back into the real world? It was a culture shock because homelessness was my real world. This, norm, this world of recovery was something different. It was new. I was a stranger in a strange land feeling that I'm being strangulated. And that's how it was. And it, I, I, I seen a process 
First, I'm introduced to the place. I'm really suspicious, extremely skeptical, extremely skeptical because nobody, nobody looked like me. What I mean by that is nobody walked around with a scowl on their face. You know, nobody appeared to to think that I have to manipulate you before you manipulate me. Because once you become homeless, that survival mode kicks in. You're going to be in survival mode. And so going from that to a place where everybody's like, hey, how are you? It's like, well, what do you want? You know? And so it took time for that. So I know um, when I first got the treatment, six months into it, I hit somebody. Because that's, that's what I know. You know? Might makes right. And they had to tell me, it's like, we don't do that no more. Oh, well, how do you get your point across? How about talking? <laughs> and so making that adjustment took time. Um, even going to get a job took time. I had to change from being a hustler to an employment seeker. Mm-hmm. All of that took time. And it took for me to be in an environment and watch in which everybody else was doing the same thing. That's why I said in Brown Manor, I'm not going to take a whole bunch of people from the homeless community and put them in this new environment because everybody's going to start thinking like they're homeless. My environment's going to turn into into a homeless camp. But if I take one person and put them in an environment where there's five or six people going in the right direction, changing their mindset, accepting what's more acceptable in this normal realm, getting a job, um, taking care of your property, being kind to people, you'll start behaving. Your behavior will change that way. And that, in turn, will produce another individual who can carry it on, sort of like a social vaccine theory. Mm-hmm. You take somebody from an environment, you change them, you put them back in that environment. And so, yeah, it, it was a transition. It was a transition. And even now, there's still areas in which I'm not too familiar with that I find some uncomfortability, but I'm able to adjust. I also think about people that are in prison. And so they become institutionalized with the fear of, okay, I'm in, I'm in this place. Nobody wants to really be there, but they're in this place. They've done it long enough. And now all of a sudden they feel comfortable. This is where they feel safe. And I almost see that very similar to what we're talking about here too, in that, maybe that becomes a place of it's safety. It's again, I don't have all those big stressors in life. Mm. All I have to worry about is making sure I got food to eat and everything else. I'll find a bench to sleep on or, you know, uh, sleep under an overpass or something. And so I don't have all the stressors of having to pay a mortgage and pay for pay, pay for a car pay for gas and all those wonderful taxes that we have here in the state of California. <laughs> do you think, do you see any correlation between that, the concept of in, institutionalized and also the, um, you know, why would somebody want to remain in prison? From personal experience, I've been in prison. And so I know what it's like to be in that environment. I know what it's like to having to adjust, to whatever those stresses are and find comfort in that. I believe that um, once we become, once our unknown becomes known, we become familiar with the known. Mm-hmm. 
And that's the whole adaptability of the human being. When I first started going to prison, it was foreign. Actually, when I was going to prison, living on, look, being in prison was better than being homeless. So I had improvement there. And so that wasn't really that bad of an adjustment. But going there enough times, it became familiar. And so that became the norm. There's no stressors or no, nothing like that in the norms. Now, people, and I work with um, people who've been in prison for a long period of time, and having to readjust back into society is, is complicated because you have this huge paradigm shift. And to adjust and adapt and utilize the tools, including um, understanding the people around you, is complicated. And that might make people feel so uncomfortable that being in prison was more comfortable. Mm-hmm. The whole theory between institutionalization, I think if you're, if you're in one place for a long period of time, you're going to become part of that environment. You have to. I mean, you really do have to adapt if you're going to survive. If you're going to, yeah. <laughs> otherwise, you commit yeah. suicide or something. Exactly. Exactly. You have to figure out a way to accommodate for that. But yeah, that's really interesting what you're doing. You know, with uh, okay. I've always been fascinated too with the concept of neuroplasticity, um, and I've studied it immensely with uh, substance abuse mm. in terms of how that works and. It, it works against us when we're using, but ends up working for us when we ultimately get clean and sober because we have killed brain cells. We've killed an enormous amount of brain cells. And so our brains do need to have the ability to create new connections, rewire itself to a certain extent so we can function as well as possible. What are, what are some of the tactics do you think that will be effective um, with that. When I, when I teach clients or, you know, when I'm working with those, I always tell them, you know, make sure you read, you know, make sure you write, um, watch what you eat because the food that we eat, you know, when you talk about neurotransmitters, um, eating foods that have L-DOPA in it, because that's the precursor to dopamine, you know, um, eating foods that have precursors to norepinephrine, um, that can ultimately stimulate, you know, that ability for it to work better. So what ideas do you have? Um, exercise always helps out. Um, reading always helps out. Um, math, (laughs) do math to stimulate your brain. That helps out puzzles, little things like that, because when you're dealing with adults, especially those that have been conditioned, um, to live and think and act a certain way, you're going to have to get them to buy into the concept in order for them to be able to do it, to grasp the full effects of it. I know um, we're going to create an environment in that house in which that's what everybody's going to be doing. And so when in Rome, you do as the Romans do. And so as people get up, we're going to have a set program. I know a lot of, a lot of homeless places will give you a shelter, but they'll say, well, we don't, we can't make you have a program. A lot of substance abuse places say, well, we're going to have, we're going to give you a program, but your program is going to be from nine to five. After that, you get to do whatever. And anytime you put a large amount of people thinking and behaving and acting a certain way, that environment will pretty much foster that thinking, acting and behavior. And so with Brown Manors, it's a big house, but I'm only going to put probably six people in that whole house to allow the individuals to be able to 
make adjustments to this new form of thinking, this new um, lifestyle, and see what happens from there. And what's the length of time you plan on keeping each individual? They can stay as long as they want. Okay. The, the beauty of it, again, this is in theory because it's never been done on a scale like this before. If you give somebody ownership of something, they're going to take pride of that. And in Brown Manor, one of the stipulations is you can stay there, but you have to start absorbing the normal rules of anybody that would have that situation. If you're going to live there for a while, how are you going to pay rent? You know, how are you going to be able to make sure that your utilities are paid? Things like in the beginning, initially, yeah, come on in. You're welcome. We'll help you get um, physiologically stable. We'll help you get mentally stable. But then comes that part where you're going to have to learn how to deal with interpersonal communications and how do you navigate life normally. Mm -hmm. That's why we always say it's a, it's a hand up. It's not a handout. Have you thought of, I know you're in the process of, you know, fixing it up and, and I don't know how much is needed as far as repairs go, but get to a place to where the people that actually move in assist with the renovations. And that would be a great vocational program. Yeah. It would, it would be, it would be good. I'm, I'm out here. And so at this phase, my thing is trying to make sure, or I want to make sure that it's structurally sound. That's why the new roof goes in. Uh, we don't have a furnace system in there. Uh, we don't have water in there yet. And so once we get to a certain level, then I'll go out there and I'll start designing the program. If, and I, and I believe in spiritual connections, things like that. If I happen to be there at the same time that somebody's there and it's like, hey, I'll help you. I need a place to stay. Okay, well, you're resident number one. And this is, you know, what's expected and things of that nature. Hey, I wanted to um, wish you a happy birthday. I saw your birthday was yesterday. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, another year. Another year. Another year, you're still kicking and moving forward and saving lives, right? I'm, I'm doing the best I can. You know, I'm just, I'm just one piece of a larger puzzle. I mean, you're, you're a piece of the puzzle. Your listeners are all pieces of the puzzle, you know, and together we can make this happen. It's just so much individuality and everybody for themselves is we forget the importance of collaborating and being cohesive because I can think one way, you can have another idea, and collaboratively, we can make things happen. And this is one of the reasons I've really been doing this, uh, this podcast is to have different people on the show. Um, some of them I do, you know, by myself and I have ideas about something <laughs> and, uh, but you know, the, um, you know, having individuals that come on my show that have different ideas that we are all working together. Um, Tiffany Werner, I actually did a, just did, uh, had her on my podcast yesterday um, and, uh, and then I was actually on hers, uh, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago. And I know you were on hers yes. uh, a while back. And, and that, that is what I think this is about. I think this is about us all collaborating together and throwing out ideas, morphing the ideas and f <laughs> finding something that works, you know? Um, and, and there is not one single solution out there. And that's what makes it, that's what makes it more complicated. <laughs> exactly. And that's, and that's the thing about um, the whole homeless thing. The homeless situation isn't just a one person thing or a one society thing or one state thing. I mean, it, it's, it's across all the world. 
more or less. It's not just one religion or one nationality or, you know, it's a combination of a lot of different things. I mean, we could, we can parse it into the, to the big three, mental illness, substance use, and financial. But then when you look into each of those individual categories, you have a lot of different stuff. And so we need to have a lot of different people involved in all of this stuff. Because the thing that we have to make sure we keep clear in the forefront of our mind, individuals that don't have a place to live belong to somebody. That is somebody's mother, somebody's brother, somebody's father, somebody's kid. That's, 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 it, it's me. It's, you know, it's you. Who knows? But as long as we, and I know this sounds like some, some far-fetched utopia idea, but if we don't start the conversation, then how can we find a solution? And I think that as numbers, you know, the more numbers we have, the more powerful we can be. And... It's like always, I mean, all of us are just trying to get through life the best we can with what we have. You know, mm-hmm. and some of some, you know, some have been handed more than others. And, and, uh, you know, if we can all just work together, we all have special abilities. We all have special knowledge and we all have special skills that we can utilize as to, you know, working together to make big things happen. It's, it's, it's interesting you just said that, too, because it, it just made me think of something. None of us get through life alone. Yeah. From birth to death, we, none of us do it by ourselves. Yeah. So why can't that same idea or philosophy be utilized to help other people navigate this thing called life? Mm-hmm. For some people, is entitlement and selfishness. Mm. And we're, you know, we see a lot of that out there is, you know, this, this idea that you owe me and, uh, you know, and then that sense of selfishness, it's all about me. I don't care about others. It doesn't bother me. And, And that's why I said in the beginning of this, you know, that, you know, I live in this world where, you know, I have emotions and I have feelings and I can drive to Los Angeles and I can see these homeless encampments and I just feel sad when I, when I do that, you know, work with, you know, the, the individuals in the substance abuse field and, you know, we, we move away from sympathy and I live in empathy, but sometimes the empathy begins to hurt as I can feel what it is that they're, experiencing because I can relate to it, you know? And, uh, and so that's, that's a lot of what my world is sometimes. And, uh, and it's something that that's why I really appreciate you and, um, you know, meeting people like you and all the guests that I've had on my show are, are people that remind me over and over and over that there are still good people out there. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's fascinating. Like I, I come from that environment, and here I am, an individual that was removed from that environment and changed my thinking because I had the opportunity, and now I get to go back and assist another person in that environment. Let's keep the momentum going. 
you know, there's, and, and, and believe me, sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's not. I was, um, <clears throat> I went, I went to the store the other day and there was a guy approached me, you know, clearly on the streets and things of that nature. And he's, Hey, you have any change? Okay. Yeah. Fine and dandy. Here you go. You know, and just by what I've been trained to see in my observational skills, I can tell that he had other things going on, you know, with his, with his life. But why add on the fact that I could diminish his self-esteem or increase his anxiety by saying, get away from me? You know, why turn down the opportunity of him having somebody or having the thought that, you know, I'm okay right now because somebody cares enough to give me a few coins versus, you know, oh, here's society rejecting me again. Because somewhere the thinking in a different avenue or different direction has to occur. And so why not initiate that? Somebody asked me before, um, <clears throat> what do you do if, when you see somebody that is, is homeless or somebody that's a vagrant and they want money? What do you do? You know, and I'm always telling people, always think safety first. Don't go anyplace where you feel that you're unsafe. But then again, you know, if you have it, why not give it? Because for me, and this is just my own philosophy, none of this stuff that I have is permanent anyway. When I die, I can't take none of this with me. So what's giving another dollar that's really not mine to somebody else? Mm -hmm. I think when I look at people that have had experiences in life like we have, you know, whether it be substance abuse, that there's one, there, there are positives to everything in life, whether they be negatives or, you know, uh, good things that we're doing in life. And I really truly believe that for a lot of the people that have gone through an addiction to the point where I have, or you have, and a lot of the pain that we've had in life, incarceration, where we lose everything, that material things mean less to us. I really believe that. And I see that with so many of those that have gone through that life that we have, because mm -hmm. I know for me, material stuff really doesn't mean that much and it never really has. Um, and so because of that, it's easier for me to hand out, you know, give money that even if I'm struggling financially to help people that are hurting. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it's something that I, I just sort of see within, within some people. Um, and a lot of times, you know, like I'll go and somebody will ask me if I have any, any money and if I don't have any cash, um, I don't have any cash, but if you want me to buy something for you in the store, I'd be glad to. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's so easy for me to do. Um, mm -hmm. I do know a lot of people struggle with it in the sense, oh, I don't want to give money because they're just going to go out and buy drugs. Right, right. Some people think that way. <laughs> yeah, and, and probably somebody would go and buy drugs with the money. And somebody would go buy it. And, and again, like you said, I've, I've been through this whole addiction thing. You know, what if that dollar was the main thing that made somebody take that last drink and go, you know what, this is not what I want in life. It, they hit that bottom finally. You know, but the thing that I focus more on is how do we practice different interpersonal skills? How do we still remain that we care about each other? So it's not necessarily 
the dollar per se you're giving somebody, but for the fact that you recognize another individual as a human being. Yeah. You know, the dollar is monetary, but just by being nice, that that that's that speaks volumes, mm-hmm. and it helps build the character of the individual that's the giver. I believe you're doing good things, Anthony. Let's talk about the COVID. Absolutely. <laughs> Since that seems to be, and that's that's one topic I really don't bring up because people have different emotions and feelings and things like that. But I have my personal opinion. You know, um, I've heard a lot about. I'm a nurse, first of all. And I believe in science. I believe in um, viruses and all of that stuff. I, I, I do. I believe that. Um, it is a virus. I believe that it can be spread. I believe that, you know, you should always practice safety and hygiene anyway. You should always wash hands. I'm not, and I don't, I don't know if anybody out there in the world that's ever been big on walking up to a stranger and getting within their personal space. So having that six-foot thing should be okay, you know. Um, I'm not going to get involved in the politics behind that. All I know is that there's always a reason and there's always something to learn from whatever life presents you. And if you look for the positive instead of the negative, there's a high probability that you're going to grow both mentally and emotionally through situations. Um, the COVID thing, I, I personally, I just smile because I have developed this mindset. I've, I've been homeless. I've, I've ate out of dumpsters. You know, I've done drugs. If there's a virus that can live in this body, then God bless it, first of all. You know? Um, But on a more of a conscious level, I think everybody should practice being safe, period. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not the question of is it real or is it not, but what are you doing with the situation that this has created? I know people are getting depressed, suicides going up, um, people are losing their jobs. All of that stuff is occurring. But is it the virus that's doing this or is it people's response to the virus? And, you know, I hear that, um, yeah, there's a lot of secondary things coming because of the virus, such as, you know, the increased drug use, the homelessness and all that. Okay. But why can't we as individuals do something to change our reaction to this? You know, whether we think it's real or not, what we do know at one point in time is the store is closed. We do know that eating out has changed. Communication has changed. And I see a lot of people, and I, my hat's off, they're on the right, they're on the right path. You know, and I'm unable to go do lectures and workshops like I normally would be. So what do we do? Plan B. Zoom. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, and from that, we're able to gain more knowledge in the field in which we never would have even looked at. Maybe that's a positive thing we can say that will keep us comfortable enough to rise through the storm. Um. Part of the issue, I think, is the mixed messages that everybody has. Okay. The mixed messages that, you know, people get. And, you know, obviously I've watched this whole thing. Safety to me is important. And, you know, but part of, 
and I would kind of watch this in, you know, I live in LA County. Now you live in Orange County. And, you know, I, it's just really fascinating to me how we have all of these people that are, that do react differently. You know, you've got some of the people that are running through stores without masks, telling everybody else to take your mask off. You're a bunch of idiots, you know, and uh, I don't really quite understand that because if they want to wear a mask, I'm not sure how that's actually going to hurt you. Um, and, and the reality is, is yes, science has said that this is real. I mean, we've had now over 200,000 Americans that have died of it. And it's pretty sad for people to go out and say that that, that doesn't really matter. Um, because to me, every single life matters whether it's one life or it's 200,000. And, and that's the way I think that, but you know, I, I'm also not one of those people that is over the top ridiculously um, because I also agree with you. I mean, I lived a crazy life and I'm sure I've had tons of bacteria and things within me. <laughs> so sharing, sharing pipes and syringes and, <laughs> but um but I, I do believe that, yeah, it is important that I think we, uh, we think for ourselves. I don't really care what, personally, I don't care what other people say. I, th I have the ability to think for myself. Some people can say it's a sham and I can say, you know, if it is, I'm still going to protect myself, you know, right. just in case it's not. One, one of the things I find fascinating is for those people who display certain behaviors, would or have they been displaying those behaviors before COVID? Like, would this be the same person that would just run up to a stranger and say something rude to them anyhow? Probably. Right. So it's not it's not the mask or the COVID. It's just a personality that was developed somewhere else because we don't, a lot of times we're not comfortable with what we're not familiar with. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can look through time and see all kinds of, you know, situations and circumstances. So the COVID is just another thing that we can display what we have learned out in public, you know. The world um, revolves around me. And that's the way a lot of the, their mentality is, you know, is that I'm the most important. You know, you should view me as the most important and that's that selfishness going back to that concept of selfishness, um, that entitlement. And I think that I really believe that that's a big issue that we're dealing with right now in our society is, is the entitlement and selfishness that people have. Mm. I mean, it's always been around, but it, it seems a little more extreme today. Yeah. Well, because, because the additional stress kind of forces it out of you. Right. You know, before you can keep it at bay somehow, but now because of, you know, your body's natural response to stress, you can't help yourself. Yeah. You know, normally when we're driving down, this, when we're driving and somebody does a sudden stop in front of you, normally you might whisper something inside your car. Okay. Now we have additional stressors. Somebody do a suddenly stop. Next thing you know, you want to beep the horn, get out the car and yell at them and everything else. Right. Because our stress level, which would, stay at a normal zero is automatically at a three when we wake up because we have all this tension from before. Right. 
And that's why the homelessness is less stressful. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a possibility. It is, you know, or they learn, they learn to deal with it. A lot of people haven't learned to deal with stress either. A lot of people cannot deal with stress appropriately. Fear Fear is, I mean, fear is the greatest destroyer of happiness. And I think even with the COVID and when this thing blew up, I mean, that's what we saw a lot of fear. Everybody's out buying, you know, truckloads full of toilet paper and, you know, uh, you know, just pounds and pounds of meat. Like it was Armageddon and, and, you know, world's about to explode. Um, and that's fear. And I think a lot of that just goes back and relates to that and people's response to fear. Mm. And where, where did, where did that learned behavior come from? And we know fear is emotion is an emotion but our, and is a response to some sort of trigger. But where do we learn that from? How to deal with fear? No, how, yeah, how to deal with it. How to even respond with it, per se. I think, I think again, I go, I, I look at, you know, again, we, we sort of live in this culture now where, you know, we have like these families that just don't want to allow their kids to experience stress. You know, we're like, oh, don't teach that in school because that's going to be stressful. Don't we don't want to have have public speaking classes anymore because it's too stressful on the student. And I think we're seeing that a lot. And I think we're seeing the response to that, because if you raise a child with that arena, once they move out of the house or they be, or they start to live an adult life. All of the stuff that they were never exposed to, or they were never taught to deal with is, is going to hit them in the face. And now it's a time where now they're going to have to learn how to do it. And they don't have anybody teaching them. And they don't have any tools. And they don't have any tools. Fascinating. So the, increase of drug use because of the isolation or the increase of self-harm because of isolation could be attributed to the fact that people may not have had any prior introduction to stressors or cope, you know, um, I guess situations that would, that would force you to have to learn how to cope and stress with things. Like, for instance, I come, I come from a violent background. Okay, that's just the way it was. I can go to prison and adjust. I can deal with COVID I can adjust. I can be homeless and adjust. You know, I can do all of that stuff. However, which makes a lot of sense, too, is well, I can adjust almost anything. You put me in an environment in which everybody's um, discussing highly complicated matters such as neuroplasticity, and I can adapt and join into it because I was taught or exposed to a lot of stressors and how to overcome those stressors. Having said that, do you think people's reactions because they're not being exposed to different ways of dealing with stress, they've just been, I don't want to use the word coddled, but sort of isolated against um, situations that would have them learn how to deal with this? What's your thoughts on that? I think the coddled is a great word to use. Because I think, you know, with the COVID, I, I will see posts on Facebook 
with certain individuals and, and they're saying like, you know, oh, you know, we live in this country of, of freedom. We have the right to freedom. You know, I should be able to go to a church full of, you know, 400 people, you know, and, and that type of thing. And, and again, for me, that seems crazy because I mean, number one, if you're looking at church, okay, where is God? Everywhere. If you believe in God, it's not necessarily something that you have to go inside a building to find. Okay. God is everywhere. And, you know, again, so we're looking at, okay, we have this COVID thing. We know that it's spread through, you know, breathing on somebody. And so, again, for me, common sense says I, I, God's right here. I can, mm. I can have God right within me. Um, I don't need to go hang out in a, in a church that's full of hundreds of people and potentially catch this COVID thing. And so again, for me, it goes back to this entitlement, you know, like if I have the, you know, I live in a country where life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? We have this freedom to do this. Yeah. But everybody has freedoms too. If you look at it and again, I'm not, you know, I'm not judging people, you know, or anything of that sense, but it's just the way my brain thinks mm. that if somebody says, oh, okay, yes, I have the freedom to do this. Well, yeah, but wait a minute now. I should have the freedom to not catch COVID too. Right. You know? So that goes again back to this whole selfishness that the world revolves around me. It's about me. And I thought originally that, you know, I was thinking that, you know, everybody was like, don't, you know, shutting, shutting cities down. Right. Well, supposedly the thing can last in your body for 14 days. Right. What if everybody on the world in the world just stayed right where they were for 14 days, nobody went anywhere. Would it disappear? Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's fascinating though, it's it just like our premise to this whole thing. Can people adapt and adjust to having to stay in clothes for 14 days? Do they have those skills? Yeah. You know, cause that, that, that horse is already out the barn. Mm -hmm. What's, what's fascinating. Cause I am, I mean, I have a eclectic viewpoint of spirituality and God. And I agree that, you know, God's not just in a church. God is everywhere. And some people agree with that. Some people disagree, which is fine and dandy. And I'm a, I'm a firm believer that people have a right to think, feel, and act however they, however they want. That's their, that's their individual right. I also believe that you would be able to make different choices with enough information. So people should make informed decisions. Yes. You know, and so if going to a house of worship is, is your thing, which is great, I'm all for it. Absolutely. But give everybody the information knowing, you know, allow people to sit back and say, okay, this is what's going on with COVID. This is the way it's potentially spread. If you believe in this thing, okay, let's voice it. And those who are like-minded is okay with this information and decision, then go ahead and do what's like-minded, but make sure everybody's informed about what's going on. I think that would be fair. Opposed to just saying, well, you have to do this because of this. Because I, I work in healthcare. A lot of decisions 
that I have to make or I get to make is based upon what CDC and, you know, Department of Mental Health and everybody else says as rules and regulations. And so in order for me to work in this capacity, I have to follow these rules and regulations. Do I agree with some of them? Not really. You know, do I do it? Well, yes. Why? Because these are what governs my resources in a sense. Will I do anything? Will I have, is there conflicting views? There's a lot of conflicting views between administration and, and science. It is, you know, but I have to be able to get enough information to make an informed decision and be able to articulate what it is that I think and feel to see if my point can persuade others to think differently. Yeah, I think, I think another thing that a lot of people fail to understand is the difference between facts, opinions, and perspectives. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that, that's another thing that, to me, seems to be lacking in our society, that people think a belief becomes a fact. So if I believe it, then it has to be real. And again, I see that on Facebook a lot too, that people put out these things as if they're facts, but they're their actual opinion. They're not based on anything to validate it as an actual truth. And that's where a lot of people, I think, get, get misguided in life too. It's, I, I am so, um, I have such an eclectic viewpoint of the world. You can get data to support almost anything to make it a fact. You can almost argue anything these days, you know, but the bottom line. Are they good arguments though? Yeah. Are they valid or are they sound? Yes. Because logic is another thing that um, one of my favorite classes was a logic and critical, logic and critical thinking class. Uh And, you know, so we studied all the different forms of uh, logical fallacies. Right, right. And how people ultimately make arguments. Mm-hmm. That's, that's something that drives me crazy. <laughs> I'll read even, you know, uh, magazine articles. You know, you got, I mean, most new, newspaper or magazine, they're all biased. You know, they have some agenda, that kind of thing. And so I'll read some of them and they'll be making these statements about stuff. And then their arguments is based on this. And it's like, I, I'll read it and just go, how does anybody believe this? You know, and, it's, and I'm not saying that what they're actually saying is false, but what I'm saying is that their argument about what they're saying is absurd, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And so that's, that's to me what, what fascinates me, I think, more than anything about, um, you know, truth, facts, beliefs, you know, and the way people say it. So, Yeah, and it's, and it's all driven or thought of or processed by an infallible being called a human. (laughs) Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So good stuff. I, 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 I I love um, learning. I love dissecting. I love looking into things from all over the place. I love the fact that um, I get to be an example of, of everything we discuss from, you know, homelessness to, COVID to human thought process, all of that comes from an individual who used to sleep underneath a bench, you know, or a person who used to sleep in a car. And this is why I want 
people to become aware that what if or how about we take another individual such as us too and give them the same liberty or the experience to have the same process that we went through to arrive where we are today. Would that person become a productive member of society? Would that person enhance life somehow? It depends on the person, depends on the fight. And, and as you know, I mean, you and I both, I mean, we had to fight for where we're at today. You know, we, mm-hmm. hit, we hit plenty of roadblocks. We hit plenty of um, things that be, made it very challenging at times. And, but I do believe that anybody can, if they're willing to fight for it and not give up. Mm. And that's where, that's where I think we lose some people is that they will go into the fight, but they're not fully committed. And when bad things happen or, or things don't work out the way they want them to, they give up. Yes. And, and I, I agree. And that's across the spectrum. I've seen people go to school per se, fail a class. I'm done with school. Okay. But you have to be introduced to something different in order to be able to know that there's something different. And that's, that's my big thing. If we keep walking by the homeless people saying, eh, that's it, knowing well that there's a program out there at one of the colleges that says, you know what, a Pell Grant, you don't need money to go to school. Here's a place over here um, that I just discovered. You can, you can apply with them and go online and they can help you find your relative. You know, there's more to life than just the little morsels we're giving people. There's more to life than just a food kitchen. There's more to life than just a temporary shelter. But a lot of people don't know. But us who have this information, are we willing to expand somebody else's space so that they can make these decisions that can help them go through the struggle or even know that there is a struggle? I think it's possible for anybody. And I think if, if we do, if, and that's part of it, you gotta, we got to put our hands out. You know, we have to, we have to let them know that there, there are other options. There are people, there's people like us that are willing to help that, that really care that want to do something. Some of those people out there don't trust anybody. Mm -hmm. Some of those people are definitely going to be very leery of even us putting our hand out because Mm -hmm. they're going to think, what do you want from me? And, you know, as we say, as we always say in the subsidies field, if we can help just one person, then it was worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, and, and I so agree with you. Just one, just, just one. Here, here is two people. Okay. And we've reached out and touched how many different people. So that one person can make a difference. That, well, that's one of my models in my book is that one light can make a difference. You know, but we have to continue to not give up. We have to continue to be advocates, you know, and we have to continue to do our own inner homework to not make us want to stop the fight. Because sometimes, you know, society can can take its toll. I know um, when I came up with my book, nobody in my new life, my new life is after I got done being homeless and got sober, Nobody in my new life knew 
I was the homeless person that wrote that book. All they seen was a college, a college graduate, a homeowner, you know, a nice little neighbor. That's all they seen. They didn't know that somewhere was an individual curled up in a ball with a hole in his shoe, struggling to even want to live. And so it's important that as we educate people, we don't lose track of what we want to do. We don't want to give up the fight. We need to be there to tell people who who want to panic and go out and buy 50 rolls of toilet paper that that's not necessary. That that you're that it, it's not you know, and we need to be able to present that in an argument so convincing that they won't be in denial about it's important to me to have toilet paper. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The the panic becomes scary to people. It does. The unknown becomes scary mm-hmm. to people, and they don't really know how to respond to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was I was sick that. You know, the people, the greatest advocates out there and the greatest people that are really, you know, fighting to do something have been through a lot of pain in life. Jody Barber. I I love that lady. I love Jody too. Um, You know, she had to go through that deal with her son. You know, Um, we had to go through, you know, our pain in our life, you know, to get to this place of the advocacy and fighting for doing good things. It would be really amazing to see, see some people out there who, who haven't had an enormous amount of pain that step out and say, I'm going to do something too, you know, or the people that have just been handed everything in life. Because it always, I'd like to hear from those people because, and, and that way it can prove me wrong a little bit, but I've always felt that the only people that really fight for helping other people are the ones that have gone through a lot of pain in their life. Are there people out there that haven't had the horrible pain in life that are fighting for this too? I I think every adult has been through something. Their their pain might be their pain might look different. Um but I think everybody's been through something. Sure. And I I you know, like say everybody has something in their closet. How painful would it be if you got the message as a kid that you have to be perfect in order to be loved and you turn out to be some successful businessman not knowing that any little failure will make you fall apart and you have to maintain that through your entire adulthood. Which you never will. Right. But couldn't that be painful? It could. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But what kind of fight are they going to give? as as far as in our community or in their community from their pain what kind of fight would they give they would probably channel it downward to their kid their kid would have to be perfectionist um as far as as far as, as far as somebody though that's stepping out and being an advocate and fighting for people and helping people they they would that's, that's, they wouldn't do that no, you would need a therapist to crack that to even get them to realize where it comes from. <laughs> yes, yes, and and I and I've seen it. I've seen. I'm a teacher, and I've seen people have have major meltdown over one point. Sure. Over one point, 
you know, and that's painful to watch. It is. But to try to break that denial to let them know that that's a problem, it's, it's, it's complicated. But maybe conversations like this might make somebody go, well, hmm, maybe me behaving in this way could be some sort of abnormal, abnormality. Because mm -hmm. no, nobody gets out of being a human without pain. Nobody. We all go through it one way or the other. It just looks different. Yep. Well, hey, I want to thank you, Anthony, for coming on. Um, I really appreciate you. And, um, and I definitely want to do this again with you sometime in the future. Um, definitely want to stay up to date on how your house is doing. I encourage all my listeners out there to take a look at uh, Into Anthony Brown. And if you have the ability to donate money to his cause, it would be very helpful and help you move along quicker. Um, I know you're going to get it at some point, but hopefully we can make it sooner than later. And, um, and so, again, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another episode of Recovering Through Highness. And I'll talk to you soon. Get back your story.